As you can tell already, if you didn't already look in your bulletin, thanks for the shout out early, Charlie. I really appreciate that one, that I am not Pastor Jared. I'm sorry. You're still here. What a great, great morning it is. Well, today we're going to be in Psalm 13. Psalm 13, if you would go ahead and find your way there. Uh, It will be on the screen behind me as well, but if you would click there or scroll there or turn there. There's so many different ways to get there now. And am I leaving anything out? I don't think so. (laughs) So we've been in the Psalms the last few weeks. We're in our Summer in the Psalms series. And uh, I don't know about you, it's been a blessing to me already. I hope it's been a blessing to you. You know, in the Psalms, we see see the power of praise. Um, We see uh, the importance of prayer. Um, But we also, we acknowledge and we see it in the Psalms, the acknowledgement of pain and and hardships. So today we're going to be in Psalm 13. And if you're there, I'd ask you to stand as we read God's word together this morning. And uh, just as an aside, this is a psalm of David. Of the 150 psalms, David uh, wrote 75 of them. He's specifically credited with 73 of them in the psalms. And then in the New Testament, he's also, it's alluded that he wrote two more as well. So this is a psalm of David, Psalm 13. My subheading says, How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? So I'll begin in verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. May God bless the reading of his word. Would you pray with me this morning as we open up? Dear Lord, thank you so much, again, for the opportunity together. Thank you so much for the opportunity to sing praises to your holy name. Lord, you deserve it all. Every word that we've uttered already this morning, Lord. I pray as we continue in worship, Lord, if there's someone here that does not have a relationship with you, I pray the gospel message would ring out in the text this morning. I pray they would see clearly that you love them deeply, that you sent your son to die for them, if they would accept that free gift of salvation. Lord, for those in the room and watching online that already have a relationship with you, Lord, will our, strength, will our faith be strengthened this morning as we dive into your word? Thank you so much. We ask all this in your name. Amen. Amen. And you may be seated. So there's a man by the name of Jerry Sitzer. Jerry Sitzer, he's an academic. He's written many uh, books on church history, theology, prayer, other Christian topics. And he's also written some books on the subject of loss and hardship and how God redeems our stories as brutal and as rugged as they are. In his book, A Grace Disguised, he shares about the hardship that he has undergone in his own life. Back in 1991, he was in the car with his four children and his wife and his mother. They were all in the car together and they were traveling down the road when out of nowhere, a car comes plummeting towards them head on. A drunk driver had lost control and barreled straight into their car. And in that moment... Jerry lost his four-year-old daughter, Jerry lost his wife, 
and he lost his mother in that moment, all three. The drunk driver, his pregnant wife was also in the vehicle with him, and, and she lost her life as well as the baby as well. So five lives gone in an instant. Tragic, tragic event. And Jerry, in this book, he shares his feelings and the moments to follow at the hospital. Listen to the description here. I remember the pandemonium that followed, people gawking, lights flashing from emergency vehicles, a helicopter whirling overhead, cars lining up, medical experts doing what they could to help. And I remember the realization sweeping over me that I would soon plunge into a darkness from which I might never again emerge as a sane, normal, believing man. In the hours that followed the accident, the initial shock gave way to an unspeakable agony. I felt dizzy with grief's vertigo, cut off from family and friends, tormented by the loss, nauseous from the pain. After arriving in the hospital, I paced the floor like a caged animal only recently captured. I was so bewildered that I was unable to voice questions or think rationally. He's so descriptive here of those moments that followed this accident, the agony, the pain that he was feeling, chaos. And this morning as, I, as we look into Psalm 13 and as I read the words that Jerry used to describe his situation, one word came to mind, and that word is crisis. Crisis. It's a familiar word to us. We may use it uh, flippantly a lot, and maybe the word has actually lost some value because of how often we use that word. Um, but it's an important word for us nonetheless this morning as we look into Psalm 13. As we look at the words that we just read a few moments ago, uh, David here, uh, I want us to think crisis as we continue this morning. Think that word crisis in the midst of us diving into Psalm 13. I think it'd be helpful for us this morning to come up with a definition for that word crisis. And I'm going to use a definition from Brian Loritz. He's a pastor and, and this is so important. Listen to what he says a crisis is. A crisis occurs when the events of life leave us with far more questions than we have answers. A crisis occurs when the events of life leave us with far more questions than we have answers. Now, as we dive into Psalm 13 this morning, it does not take a seminary education to understand and notice that David is asking a series of questions here at the beginning. In fact, he asked the same question four times. How long, O Lord? How long, how long, how long? It seems as if he has far more questions than answers. Isn't that frustrating when the questions far outweigh the answers in our life? Have you been in a season or are you in a season now when you have far more questions than you have answers? It's evident here that David's full of questions. And if you know anything about the life of David, you would know and you would echo that it's crisis upon crisis in his life. I mean, yes, David has great seasons of triumph and victory, but there's some very, very low valleys that David walks through. In 1 Samuel, we see David spends more than a decade, probably 14 to 16 years, running from his father-in-law, who's trying to kill him, King Saul, He's on the run for a long period of time. 2 Samuel 11, uh, David's king now, and he commits adultery with Bathsheba. 
And then to cover it up, he has her wife Uriah killed, so David becomes a murderer. 2 Samuel 12, uh, David repents of that. He asks the Lord to forgive him of that. But the baby, Bathsheba's child, still dies. Crisis. 2 Samuel 13, David's son Amnon is murdered by his other son Absalom. Crisis. 2 Samuel 16, David's son Absalom leads a rebellion to usurp David's throne. Crisis. 2 Samuel 18, David's son Absalom is murdered. I mean, it's just his entire life is just crisis upon crisis upon crisis. And so we look at Psalm 13 today, and, and the question I was asking myself as I began to sit down and read it, and maybe you're asking yourself as well, is, well, what crisis is David going through as he's writing Psalm 13? What's going on in his life? I want to know. And I, I'll have to tell you this morning that we don't know. We're not certain what crisis... He's going through, you know, I just named a few things that he's gone through, but there's so, other, so many other things as well, and it could be a number. It could be any of these things, and so I think there's actually beauty in the ambiguity of that. The fact that we don't know specifically what he's going through might be beneficial to us this morning because simply we can understand that David, he went through things like we go through things. Just like us, he had seasons, again, of major triumph, major victory, but also seasons of pain, seasons of despair. Far more questions than there are answers. And so today I've titled the sermon, Are We There Yet? Because I think maybe there might be someone in the room or watching online today, and they're asking that question. Are we there yet? Are we on the other side of this unbearable season? When will the pain go away? When will the loss not hurt so much? When will the healing be apparent to my eyes? I want to know when it's going to be over. And that's part of the seasons that we are asking those questions is it's really, you know, loss and pain and hardship that we go through are, are very tough things, but part of the problem is we, we're asking when is it going to be over? That's what we don't know. We can't see on that other side. I remember growing up, and uh, we'd go on long road trips as a family down to uh, on vacation, or one time uh, our local church decided that it would be a great idea to drive in a 15-passenger van with 18 people in it uh, from North Carolina all the way up to Vermont. It wasn't a great idea, I'll tell you that. It was packed, and the kids, myself was one of them, we were asking this question over and over and over again. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? This is pain to sit in this car for 15, 16, 17 hours. Are we there yet? I just want to know when it's going to be over. And that's what David's asking here. How long, oh Lord? Are we there yet? How long? How long? How long? One thing that I love most about David in the Psalms is his authenticity. We see glass house writing. We can see his emotions right on the page. He doesn't shy away from expressing his feelings. And yeah, I said that word in church this morning, feelings. And I know when I say that word in church, we get real antsy in our seats. Because somehow, somewhere in our Christian history, somewhere in church history, we've come up with this idea that you're less spiritual if you express your feelings. Or, to put it another way, the more spiritually mature you are, the more emotionless you become. 
And I don't really know where that came from. And I see David writing here, and keep in mind, referenced twice as a man after God's own heart. He did mighty things, and, and David's not emotionless. He's actually painting his emotions right on the page. We see him expressing his feelings to the Lord. I mean, he's putting it right out there in the open for everyone to see, including the Lord, who is the person he's talking to here. Why is it that we're so content with hiding our feelings from God? I know we do it with other people, but why do we hide our feelings from God? We do the same thing with sin, by the way. We, we think that we can hide from the creator of the universe, the person who has saved our souls and knows every single part of who we are. We think we can hide from him. We think that he doesn't understand and he doesn't know what we're going through, so we hide our feelings. David doesn't do that here. And so today we're talking about navigating crisis and how to do that. Way easier said than done. But the first thing we see is that we can navigate crisis by bringing our feelings to God. We can navigate crisis by bringing our feelings to God. I was looking through my shelves uh, in my office just this week, and I came across this book entitled The Message of Psalms in Contemporary Language. I, I didn't even know I had the book, y'all. <laughs> There's so many things on my shelves that they look great sitting there, but I have not read all of them. And they may be a gift or from a conference or something, and so it was, it was a treasure to find this on my shelf, The Message of Psalms in Contemporary Language by Eugene Peterson. And what he's done is he's taken the psalms and he's put them into a modern-day vernacular. So listen to Psalm 13 here. Listen to the emotion. Listen to the contemporary language used. Long enough, God, you've ignored me long enough. I've looked at the back of your head long enough. Long enough I've carried this ton of trouble, lived with a stomach full of pain. Long enough my arrogant enemies have looked down their noses at me. Take a good look at me, God, my God. I want to look life in the eye so no enemy can get the best of me or laugh when I fall straight on my face. Listen to this. I've thrown myself headlong into your arms. I am celebrating your rescue. I am singing at the top of my lungs. I am so full of answered prayers. I love the language used there in that contemporary version of Psalm 13 because those are words that I could probably find myself writing down. Those are words that I might use. So that was helpful for me this week. Well, we read six verses earlier in Psalm 13. We've got six verses in Psalm 13, and I think this will be helpful to kind of split this into three different sections just to be helpful so you can see it. So as they put that up on the screen, we'll see that there's three different sections we find in this chapter we see expressions of despair. These are expressions of David, by the way. Expressions of despair in verses 1 and 2. Uh, we see expressions of his desires in verses 3 and 4. And then we ex see expressions of delight in verses 5 and 6. And so we're going to dive in now to verse 1 and 2. And I'll read it again for us. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? So we see here that simply David is bringing his feelings to God. He is in complete and utter despair. You know, I've read that, and I can try to voice it that way, but I have no idea. I mean, he's in complete despair, probably on his knees. He may be in the cave hiding from Saul when writing this. 
He doesn't know uh, what's going to happen the next day. There's enemies surrounding him on all sides. To him, keyword to him, it is apparent that God is nowhere to be found. At least that's the feeling that he has as he expresses it here. In verse 1b, David asks, how long will God hide his face from him? Uh, Theologians call this an anthropomorphism. Long word, I got it this time. An anthropomorphism where human characteristics are being used to describe God. When David's referring to the face of God here, uh, he's referring to the presence of God. We see this all throughout the Old Testament. God's presence uh, characterized as God's face shining upon people or a group of people. His presence is there. But here, from David's perspective, God's absent. The question this morning is, is God really absent? That's the question we ask ourselves. Um, Simply no, but let's look at the scripture. Isaiah 49, verses 14 through 16. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child? that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before him. God's attention to his people is keener than a mother to her nursing child. Think about that. His attention to his people is keener than a mother to her nursing child. He says, Behold, I have engraved you as if calling them to gaze upon his open hands toward them. He concludes by saying, Your walls are continually before me. At this time in Isaiah, when they're writing this, they're looking at the rubble of Jerusalem. The walls have been destroyed by the Babylonians. But God intends to restore and build back up these broken walls. I mean, at this moment, and maybe in your life right now, this morning, It may look like it's in shambles, but God, who is ever-present, is always working. You know, we moved down here, Samantha and I, a little over a year ago, and one of the things we've noticed, and we talk about it all the time, it it rains so much here. (laughs) I feel like it rains so much here, and it rains hard, too. I mean, it's scary rain here. And I was thinking about that rain, and, you know, on a a day that it's raining, usually uh, the sunshine is not present. We see clouds, and it's gloomy, and it's gray. And we think to ourselves, and you may even ask yourself, is the sun still there? I mean, these clouds are gloomy. They're gray. I don't see any sunlight. The sun's still there. We may see the clouds in the moment, but the sun's still shining. It's shining strong. It's still powerful. So is God. We move to verses 3 and 4. He says, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. So we see something happening here between verses 1 and 2 and 3 and 4. What David's doing is he begins to move from his despair, his current situation that he's sitting in, whatever it may be, he, can move, he moves from despair to petition. This is his prayer life, y'all. He moves from despair to petition. He uses the words, light up my eyes, as if his eyes are dull, as if his eyes are dim. He is in darkness. In this present moment, all I see around me is darkness. In his commentary, Matthew Henry, he parallels this light up my eyes with strengthen my faith. 
think light up my eyes, strengthen my faith. He says, for faith is the eye of the soul with which it sees above and sees through the things of sense. Right now, we think that there's clouds and the sun is not present, but faith gives us the opportunity to see above the things that to us seem to be present and apparent. David's prayer here is, Lord, enable me to look beyond my present troubles. Refresh my soul with joy of your salvation. Yes, it seems as though the enemy surrounds me on all fronts. The extremities he used here, they show his dependence on God. Lord, if you don't light up my eyes, I'm without hope. That's what he's saying. Lord, if you don't light up my eyes, I will sleep the sleep of death. I'm hopeless without you to light up my eyes. David recognizes his need, and he takes it to the only one who can satisfy. Psalm 27.1 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? In 2 Samuel 22, we see this is David's song of deliverance here. David's song of deliverance. He says, For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. Sometimes it's tough to see. All we see is that cloud. All we see is the darkness around us. But the Lord lights up our path and lights our way. Verse 5 says, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. This is a turning point here. So again, I talked about three different sections that our passage splits up this morning. We see his expressions of despair. We see his expressions of desires and his expressions of delight. So now we're moving to that third category, his expressions of delight in the Lord. Now let me go ahead and let's recap. How long, O Lord, he's in this despair. He is troubled beyond belief. And now I go back and read all the verses and I try to figure out between four and five, his circumstance must have changed, I guess, because he's, he's joyful and he's trusting in the steadfast love of the Lord. Now, his circumstance, we don't get even a hint that it's changed at this moment. It does seem, though, that as David's in this psalm and he's writing and speaking to the Lord, it seems that in his process of bringing his feelings to God, He's a totally different person from four to five. In the Bible, we see this all the time. I love that little three-letter word, B-U-T. But God in his mercy. Here, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. It's a change in the passage. That's the exciting part for us this morning. So yes, to navigate crisis, we definitely need to bring our feelings to God. And we don't do that. We don't do that. We need to work on that. We struggle with doing and bringing our feelings, some of us to, to even people, but to bring our feelings, or to, to not bring our feelings to the God of the universe, the one who is the lover of our soul that can see every part of us, it just doesn't make sense, does it, for us to not bring our feelings to him right out in the open? So yeah, we can navigate crisis by reflecting on the truths of God, but there's an important truth, and this is our second point, we can navigate crisis by reflecting on the truths of God. So it's important 
and please don't miss this, bringing our feelings to God is important. But your feelings are only wonderful passengers in the car. Your feelings are awful drivers. They're wonderful passengers. Let's not put them in the trunk. Let's not forget about them. But they're awful drivers. We're not going to lead our lives with our feelings. When Samantha and I were going through uh, marriage counseling a few years ago, which, quick plug, uh, biblical marriage counseling before you step into the bonds of marriage, I can't recommend it enough. Super, super helpful. And uh, I would encourage anybody that's walking in that direction to do the same. But there'll be a picture on the screen behind me. And this picture, diagram, whatever the right word there is for that, uh, we can see a choo-choo train. I know it's just a train, but I want to call it a choo-choo train this morning because that just seems more fun. And so in that train, we see three different cars. We see an engine, we see a middle car, and then we see a, you might call it a caboose. I would even say it might still be another middle car, and the caboose is kind of even farther back because I'm thinking this train's a little longer than we even see in the picture. But we see these three different cars, and what you see there in the first one is that our engine is fact. Our engine is fact. These are the truths about who God is. This is never changing. This is true 100% as we look at God's word. These facts about who God is, that's the foundation of what our faith rides on and what we believe. And because of those facts about who God is, what we do is we respond to that in faith. We believe that that's true. We respond to that in faith with our lives. And then notice there at the back, our feelings, they're there. We can see them. They're there and they are important. Our feelings come after our faith in God. But what would happen if we were to turn this picture the opposite direction and we let our feelings lead our lives? Chaos. <laughs> chaos. 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 So it's important for us to understand that feelings are important and they're great passengers, but they are not the driver. They are not the driver. The facts and the truth about who God is is the driving force in our life. In verse 5, what David does is he shifts from how he's feeling and maybe even how he's feeling about God. Right? He uses some pretty strong language here. So he shifts how he's feeling about God to what he knows to be true about God. His feelings about God in this present moment to what he knows in his heart to be true about God and who God is. He says, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. I think these might be the two most important words in this psalm. Steadfast love. Uh, this is the Hebrew word hesed, which translates to us for stead, as steadfast love. This word's so important that it's found about 250 times in the Old Testament, over 100 times in the Psalms, which is God's iTunes playlist to us, the Psalms are. 250 times in the Old Testament, it's an important word. And if you read the Old Testament, you're going to stumble across it sooner or later. I like the definition for said here that Michael Card gives because this is a hard word to define. He says, said is, or steadfast love is, when the person whom I have the right to expect nothing from gives me everything. When the person whom I have the right to expect nothing from gives me everything. Where do we see said in the Bible? <laughs> Several places. Uh, just a few examples. We see it in Exodus 34. Uh, God has led his people out of Egypt, 
out of captivity. He parted the Red Sea. They walked straight through it. He is leading them by fire at night, by clouds during the day. He's giving them manna. He's providing for them abundantly. And what do they do? (laughs) Moses goes away for a minute, and I think they construct a calf that they're going to worship. Thanks, but no thanks, God. I think we're going to worship this calf. We're going to worship this idol. We, we don't need you. Thank you so much, though, for what you've done. And what does Moses do? He pleads with God. God says, you know what, Moses? I think I'm going to press a hard reset on this. These people have turned away from me. These people do not love me. And Moses pleads for God's steadfast love. He has said, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in his said steadfast love, and faithfulness, keeping, again, we see it, has said, steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. The gospel message, by the way, is not just in the New Testament. It's painted throughout the entire grand narrative of Scripture. We see it right there, forgiving the iniquity and the transgression and sin. Nehemiah, he pleads on, on the people's behalf. Nehemiah 1, 5 and 6 and I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and has said steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant now that I pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. We go to Hosea. We see in the first chapter of Hosea, the Lord says, Hosea, you're going to marry Gomer, that prostitute over there. Oh, and in two more chapters, she's going to go her own way. But you're not going to leave her. You're going to go and you're going to pick her and you're going to bring her back home. She is, these are the words that use in the Bible, whoring around. But you're going to bring her back into the fold. You're going to love her just like I do my people. Prodigal son, we see in Luke, right? Prodigal son. The son comes to the father and he says, hey, dad, you know what? Go ahead and give me my inheritance now. A.K.A. parentheses, I wish you were dead. Go ahead and give me my inheritance now so I can go off my own way and live the way that I want to. Thanks so much for what you've taught me. Thanks so much for loving me and being unconditional in your love to me, but I think I'm going to go off my own way. What happens at the end of that story? He's squandered all the money. He's lived recklessly. He brings himself back to the Father. What does the Father do? What does the Father do? This Jewish man picks up his... uh, I'm wearing jeans this morning, but he picks up his cloak and he runs to his son. That doesn't happen much, by the way. He runs to meet his son. He embraces him. He knows his son's been living carnally. He knows that his son's been forsaking everything that he taught him. But he shows what? Steadfast love. He shows his said. The son does not deserve this at all but the father gives him everything. He doesn't deserve anything. The father gives him everything. They throw a party. They do the Cupid shuffle. Uh, They are excited for this wayward son that's come home. So we see his said throughout the entirety of the Bible. Uh, The grand narrative, remember we have 66 books, but they're not individual books. They are, but they point to a greater story. The grand narrative of Scripture, God's redeeming mankind. We see his said throughout the entirety of it. Our faith this morning, this is why we've sung already this morning, it, it, it hangs on the hesed or the steadfast love of God. So that's what we know. That's what we know. 
And so we're going to round third. We're going to move towards home today. But we know that we can navigate crisis by bringing our feelings to God. We can navigate crisis by reflecting on the truths of God. And then lastly, we can navigate crisis by responding in faith to God. We can navigate crisis by responding in faith to God. I love verse 6. Will you look there with me? He says, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Remember where we've been. The beginning of the psalm, he is in great despair. And again, the words that I've said this morning as I read, they probably don't even begin to describe the despair that he is in. He's, in, he's on his knees. He's pleading with God, how long? You feel distant, God. I, I don't even see your face, it feels like. I feel that you have left and abandoned me. How long is this going to carry on? I am in great despair. And then he moves to what he knows about God to be true. Your steadfast love is for me. You have covered me. And now he moves to praise. Now he moves to praise. Now, has his circumstance changed? This doesn't have to be rhetorical. Let's all just say, has his circumstance changed? No, nothing we see here says that it's changed. And so he's going to praise the Lord. He's going to sing. This isn't him willing himself to do it. And I, I love that we get to this part in, the, in this text today as a worship pastor, because I'm going to say this. In the scripture, the word sing appears 200 times. 50 of those, a quarter of those, are commands. We're commanded to sing to the Lord. I'll just drop that mic there. So worship pastor, thank you so much for not throwing tomatoes at me as I say that. We are commanded to sing to the Lord. Uh, I love Colossians 3, verses 16 and 17. I never separate these two verses because I think Colossians 3, 16 and 17, I think that is the outline for us as believers. Listen to this. We need to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's the truth of God. This is what we know to be true about him, the word that he's given us. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms. We're reading one today. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's Colossians 3, 16 and 17. So his circumstances haven't changed, but in response to the said of God, he lifts his heart and his voice and prays, God, your steadfast love is at the center of my life. Yes, there's circumstances. I am in, remember that word we used at the beginning, crisis. I may find myself in shambles right now, so it seems. But I have already made up my mind that because God has said, because his steadfast love has covered me, I can respond in faith and worship. And again, this isn't manufactured praise, but this is an expression of gratitude and an expression of delight. It doesn't make light of the crisis that surrounds us, but it doesn't give the crisis the power to ensnare. The devil wants that crisis to ensnare us. He wants that to defeat us. He wants us to wallow in it. Misery loves company. 
Let's not give him that power. We know what's true about the Lord. Yes, our circumstances, we may find ourselves in tough, tough spots. I know in a room this size, and even those that are watching online, there is so much crisis upon crisis. I mean, maybe, just maybe, we could compete with David on crisis this morning with just those in the room. I know that it exists, but we respond in faith with an expression of gratitude and delight. I love this hymn, and I'll read the words for us this morning. Come thou fount of every blessing, and you'll know it. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. I'd never noticed this before in that first line that I just read. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. There's this idea in physics, and if I were to go over to my uh, guitar here, and I had a C tuning fork, a C tuning fork. This idea is called sympathetic resonance. And I had that T C tuning fork. It's tuned to the, to the note C, whatever hertz that is. I know, it's getting scientific, right? And if I were to hit that C tuning fork and hold it up to a guitar string that's been tuned to that C, that string would vibrate in the presence of the same note as it is. This says, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Lord, tune my life, tune my heart to sing the truths of who you are in your word. I don't want to be out of tune, Lord, but tune my heart to sing your grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. We see it in the scriptures. The heavens are declaring the glory of the Lord. The angelic beings are singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Sung by the flaming tongues above is what it's saying. Praise the mount, I am fixed upon it. This is the mount of thy redeeming love. Let's pray this morning. Lord God, thank you so much for the opportunity. So much for the opportunity to gather this morning in this place. To sing songs of praise and adoration to your holy name. but Lord, also to dive into your word. Thank you so much for Psalm 13. As we've dived in this morning, Lord, we see that there is great despair and crisis in David's life. And Lord, again, I say it again, in a room this size, we know that there is crisis upon crisis in the lives represented here today. Lord, will we be comforted today to know what we know about you to be true stands above it all, And we can respond in faith because of that, not because of our present circumstance. Lord, if there's somebody in the room today, and we've talked through Psalm 13, and they realize, you know, I am in crisis. I don't know what's going on in life. I've got so many questions, more questions than answers. You talk about this has said, this steadfast love, and I haven't experienced that. Lord, if there's those in the room that haven't experienced the steadfast love of Jesus Christ, I pray today could be the day where they experience that and it would change them forever. And Lord, those that are in the room and watching online that have a relationship with you, we can say, Lord, I've experienced your goodness. I've experienced your said, your steadfast love, but I still find myself in crisis right now. I still find myself in a very tough season at work or at school or in my family life. 
or in with my friends, Lord, I find myself in a tough season. Lord, would you give the boldness to those that need to come down to the altar to just pray, spend time with you, Lord. Let's pour our feelings out to you as David does in this psalm, Lord. Let's not hide anything from you, Lord. Thank you so much for the opportunity to respond today. We ask this in your name. Amen. And as we close our service this morning, Scott's going to lead us in that familiar tune, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. I would invite you to stand. The altar is open. We'll have pastors down front that would love to talk with you. Let's respond in faith this morning.